Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 7th of May with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up in a bumper episode this week is a chance to hear a discussion involving Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and palm oil expert Simon Lord. Previously published as part of a new series of podcasts looking into the law of unintended consequences, they talk about why just planting trees doesn't really solve deforestation problems. And a few weeks ago, I caught up with Anche Feeling from BlueSign to reflect a bit on last week's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference and to talk about what characterises a useful tool for companies keen to get on top of supply chain management. We've also got an update about the upcoming Innovation Forum Future of Food Europe conference coming up next month. That's all to come. First, some sustainable business news. France's legislative response to the climate crisis is becoming clearer, with the French National Assembly's approval of a wide-ranging climate bill with the aim of cutting greenhouse emissions by 40% by 2030, with 1990 as a baseline. Among the measures approved are new rules and packaging designed to reduce waste, curbs on airport expansion, banning of outdoor heaters in cafes and restaurants, and requirements for schools to offer lower-impact menus. However, the new measures are too little too late, according to Greenpeace, and others have also criticised the bill for not being robust enough. Commentators say that the French President Emmanuel Macron is hoping to boost his green credentials ahead of next year's elections. The climate bill has to pass through the French Senate before a final vote will pass it into law. Not to be left behind, Germany is raising its targets for cutting carbon emissions by 2030 to 65% from 55%. It has also set 2045 as the target date for carbon neutrality. The more ambitious targets have been set because the German Supreme Court had ruled that the previous goals had not been ambitious enough and were vague on detail. UK supermarket chain The Cooperative Group is cutting the price of its plant-based sausages and burgers in the light of criticism that choosing vegan options can sometimes be more expensive than meat. The co-op is reported to be investing millions of pounds into its Grow Vegan range, cutting some prices in half so that veggie sausages and burgers are comparable price-wise with meat-based alternatives. Despite the price differentials, the UK vegan market has boomed in recent years. Consumers spent over half a billion pounds on non-meat burgers and sausages alone in 2020, and research suggests that this will increase by 50% over the next five years. The co-op was among a group of high-profile supermarket chains, including Tesco, Little, Marks & Spencer, Asda and Sainsbury's, along with other businesses in the food supply sector, that have written an open letter to lawmakers in Brazil's parliament asking that they do not pass new legislation that has been dubbed a land-grabber's bill by environmentalists. Current rules say that only land that has not been occupied by indigenous communities since 2011 may be transformed. The new proposals would bring that forward to 2014. The bill would allow anyone illegally occupying land to apply for legal ownership. If the new rules are passed, the supermarket's letter says that they will be forced to consider whether continuing to use Brazilian commodity supply chains on environmental grounds. Many, if not most of the signatories, of course, have high-profile zero-deforestation commitments. In addition, national rules on biodiversity in a number of countries are increasingly requiring companies to be very careful about deforestation and other environmental supply risks. The coffee sector is one that is thought to be at particular risk from climate change, given the sensitivity of Arabica coffee bean plants to increases in temperature. However, a new paper from researchers at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in London and the University of Greenwich suggests that a rare wild coffee species from West Africa could provide a solution. They have found that Stenophylla coffee beans can tolerate much warmer temperatures than Arabica, suggesting that they could be grown commercially as a climate-resilient crop in hotter places than Arabica. Apparently, the Stenophylla beans also score well in taste. Kew scientists say that the crop could provide a sustainable future for the coffee sector in a changed climate. This week, I caught up with my Innovation Forum colleague, Narni Brookadil, about what to expect at the Future of Food Europe conference coming up in a few weeks' time. Welcome to the podcast, Narni. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me again. 
How's the conference shipping up then? Yeah, really well, actually. I'm really pleased with it. So we've now got the agenda packed full of over 50 incredible speakers that I think our audience will really love hearing from. Some of the most recent additions include speakers from Waitrose, Thai Union, uh, Rabobank, Noble Foods uh, and Nomad Foods, actually, IKEA, Wrap. And we also had some really interesting contestants join us for our Dragon's Den session. Uh, so, yeah, really looking forward to this one. OK, so with Thai Union, does that mean we're going to have a seafood session then? Yes. Last minute addition to the agenda. We've added a plenary session around sustainability within the seafood industry. I know it's a huge topic that we could probably run an entire conference on, but I want to at least include an insight into the challenges that the industry is facing. So we'll be hearing from Thai Union, Marine Stewardship Council, Cargill and the Nature Conservancy for that one. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. That's at the end of day two, I believe. Excellent. And you said we had a Dragon's Den session again. I also find them fascinating. So who have we got appearing on Dragon's Den? Yes. So we have two very good dragons this year. We have Anne Greven. She is Global Head of Food and Ag Innovation at Rabobank. And we have Tom Mastrobuoni, Chief Investment Officer at Big Idea Ventures. So they'll be grilling our contestants. And then we have Dirk Hendrickson, who is co-CEO of Treasure 8. They have a dehydration technology, I think. And then Stephanie Michelson, I hope I'm saying all these names right, uh, co-founder and CEO of Gelatech, who are doing plant-based gelatin. And I have a few others in the pipeline, but I can't reveal those. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that. So what should delegates expect at the conference? The key thing for us is we try and keep all our conversations as practical as possible. There are a whole load of sustainability conferences, as we know, and we try and stand out by keeping things nitty gritty and straying away from the sort of broader overarching conversations that never get into that much depth. Especially this year, we're trying to cut down on our intro time even more. So we're getting straight into the questions so we can answer as many as possible, really, in the time that we have. The thing we do try very hard to do at Innovation Forum is to get straight to the material issues uh, as, as fast as we can. So what are your hopes for the conference? What are the outcomes that you're looking forward to? I think the main purpose for all of our conferences and this one as well is for businesses to learn from each other. So it's fantastic to be doing your own sustainability work within your own company or role. I feel that that work is only going to progress by hearing about what others are doing outside of your network. So do they have different approaches to certain challenges for you? Do those practices also work for you? Or maybe you're working in a way that might benefit other businesses as well. The key thing, I just want a lot of practical knowledge sharing, getting as many answers to people as possible for their questions. And of course, making new connections with the other attendees. Certainly hope that um, we'll all be learning from each other. So, listeners, the conference is the 15th to the 17th of June. And if you register by the 14th of May, you can receive a £100 discount on 3D passes. Thanks very much, Nani. Perfect. Thanks, Ian. Recently, Innovation Forum's Toby Webb spoke with palm oil and forest expert Simon Lord about the unintended consequences of simply planting trees as a way to mitigate the negative impacts of deforestation. We join Toby as he explains some background to the conversation. I've been getting a lot of emails recently from companies talking about either their tree planting programs, their plans to plant trees, or a service they're offering to sell me and my customers on tree planting in this year of climate change policy. So clearly, tree planting is, is taking an enormous amount of shape in terms of interest. But of course, there are different ways of doing it. And you can have bad forestry projects and you can have good ones. Simon, let's talk briefly, about, I suppose, about the drivers for this. One of the reasons everyone wants to plant trees at the moment is clearly because of climate change. But we've got to be quite careful, haven't we, in how we do this, because not all forests and plantations and tree planting projects are created equal, are they? 
certainly not equal. And, you know, I think just because of climate change isn't just the other driver. The other one is lots of biodiversity. And if you start looking at biodiversity, then there has to be a habitat to actually preserve those species. And so I think that the other driver is a restitution to this planet in which we restore the forests as part of the rich biodiversity in the world. And, and I think those two are the big drivers for what we've been through. Yes, certainly true. It's definitely a year of nature and biodiversity. Well, that and rewilding, isn't it, Toby? I mean, it, you know, certainly in the UK, people are talking about rewilding because we've gone through COVID. I know there's a great deal of chatter on social media about whether or not rewilding and the fact of loss of loved ones can be combined and so that people plant a tree for every person who has actually been lost due to COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, trees attract, you know, they're, they're an emotional subject. People feel very strongly about them. But from, from a corporate point of view, Simon, if a, a company comes to you and says, we're not sure about some offsetting projects for one reason or another, but tree planting sounds good to us. And we've got this carbon footprint and we've done our scope one, scope two, and we do need to do some offsets. So tree planting sounds pretty good. Where should we look? What do we do first? What would your advice be? Well, first of all, I would tell them you've come to the wrong company. You know, I no longer work for, for corporates anymore. I'm, I'm independent. But when I was CSO of, of Simon Darby, it's a plantation company. Plantation companies still haven't got their heads around is the fact that, in a sense, they're also land management companies and they have a huge amount of, of land available. A company that came to me offering to plant trees on our behalf, um, we would probably turn down. And the simple reason would be that we have our own tree planting programs, or we did when I was there have our own tree planting programs, because it's, we own some of the land and therefore we can actually afford to do it. <laughs> A lot of these people that come and actually say, well, we can plant trees on behalf and, and that way you can offset. And they've done the calculations and you know, X number of trees equals so many tons of CO2 equivalents. You know, your first questions are is, well, you know, where is it? You know, what type of trees are you planting? Is it a mixture? Are they endemic? Are they native species? Or is it some kind of monoculture that they're actually going to be setting up? The next thing is, is how are you going to go about it? It's not easy, actually, creating a forest. We've all done a little bit of gardening. We've all done a little bit of planting. And the tree planting is, is not quite the same. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. But if you're actually creating a forest, then that's an entirely different thing. You have to get the mixture right, you know, the composition of the forest. Nature does it brilliantly on its own. If you're going to do, actually, a human-made one, then you actually have to try and mimic that as far as possible. We've got quite a bit of experience of riparian or buffer zone expansion near rivers, uh, widening them, making them into corridors. They're a slightly different function than to actually trap carbon, although, of course, they're going to do that. This was for a wildlife movement and also, indeed, for physical protection of, of riverbanks and the land beyond it. You know, some of the lessons learned there is that, first of all, it's, it's quite easy to plant trees another matter to maintain them and so my other question to a company would be all right well what are your plans once you've built how are you actually going to maintain it you know what kind of effort what kind of budget is there put aside for basically forest management what we learned was that just taking native species 
you know, essential really, and creating these buffer zones, what we needed to do was plant, first of all, pioneer species that would provide the shade because most of the endemic species actually needed the shade cover in order for them to start flourishing. And the other problem is that because the land is often being cleared and you're clearing it and you're actually planting from scratch, is that all these invasive species, which normally would be under control in a balanced ecosystem within a forest, they actually need to be dealt with. And if you're going for a pesticide-free or herbicide-free approach, then the only way that you can do that is actually manual labour and to physically remove climbers and the weeds that compete with these young sap. But we did in, in Sabah with the Syme Derby Foundation, it's called Yayasan Syme Derby, we built 5,400 hectare forests from scratch. All palm planters know how to plant trees. And sadly, we always plant them in straight lines. And indeed, that was the approach that we did for the forest. Planting them in a random way actually is not very productive and takes about 12 times as long to do. So we had these rentices in which the trees would be planted. Now we worked out the spacing. Uh, optimized in advice, it's it's about two meter by two meter. So you're essentially planting a tree in a two meter by two meter quadrant, a little square, and you want to get a composition mix in that area. And you're looking at somewhere about 25 species. And you're wanting to get a stocking density. And it varies, but somewhere between 600 to 1,000 trees per hectare. And we've worked out the cost of doing that. We tried it at 2,000 trees per hectare, which was a bit dense. But it was needed because in the early stages, you know, we weren't very good at this. And so there was actually mortality. You know, that's something, the attrition rate. You learn by doing this. And then with Wetlands International and a great guy called Basil Parrish, we worked with them and they were restoring a peat zone which is on the edge of one of the biggest forests. And it was just very small areas, but also learned a lot in how to basically recolonize these peat areas. And again, they chose rentices, these straight lines, to, to get the trees, first of all, established. Later on, nature will do its own job and infill. But again, they had huge problems, not from what you would expect, but actually from local people, and I think egged on by some local councillors, politicians who urged the people because there were counterclaims on this land, although it was NGO land, and they actually kept on going in and burning down the young seedlings. And, and I remember Simon Darby used to have to send its own fire brigade to help them, because it wasn't our project, we were just involved in it, uh, to keep putting out these fires before they could finally get established. There, there was complete start from beginning, plant these trees. In other areas, they were planting trees, at irregular intervals to in allow natural encroachment and, and build that. In other areas, we planted 1.3 million trees now, all of which are endemic to various states in Malaysia. And these are on parcels of land, which for one reason or another, thank goodness, were never planted with oil palm. There's tremendous areas available, even in a country like Malaysia, where infilling and tree planting can occur, let alone when you start talking about the temperate areas 
and the green spaces in the UK where I live, where you can do it. So do we talk about tree planting? Because it's very, it sounds very simple, because forest restoration is so difficult. I mean, I went to a forest restoration project in Sumatra just before COVID happened. I was blown away by the complexity of it. It's um, not something I thought about much, but visiting the nursery, and I've got some video of this, listeners, which I'll post for, for you to see underneath the podcast or, or, or somewhere in the notes. You know, you look at the number of species you have available to you to try and put in, and it's literally square metre by square metre on the edge of this seriously degraded forest, which have been degraded over the last century or so. And it struck me it was an unbelievably complex and painstaking process where you've got to make some very difficult choices about which species you might favour over others. Is that why we talk about tree planting? Because forest restoration is so damn difficult. Yeah, I think it is. And, and, and also, you know, there I say it's, it's shades of green, isn't it? 50 shades of green when you start doing forest planting. People do it for lots of reasons. But like any forest or any tree planting starts with good nursery management. And the best people to select the species are local people, communities. I know that Eric Wacker in Aid Environment is working very hard in Indonesia on community forests. And I know that the work that Syme did with Nestle's on these restoration of these buffer zones, I mean, basically, Syme Darby had bought a plantation and with it the liability that the earlier owners planted right up to the edge of a river, which is a no-no under the RSPO, but also a no-no when you think about it in common sense. So it began this program of restoring along with Nestle. And there we engaged with the local communities and particularly the women's group who seemed to have better green fingers than the men. And essentially they would gather the seeds from the surrounding forests um, after the infrastructure was put in they would manage and maintain the nursery. Because, I mean, rubbish in, rubbish out. Not being afraid to cull at the nursery level if something doesn't look perfect pays off in the long run. I mean, it works with oil palm and it works with most tree species. You know, you plant something that's in poor health, you know, if you go to any garden centre, <clears throat> you know, you don't pick something that looks a little bit poorly and expect it to flourish. Um, it's not animal rescue. It's actually planting trees. So people talk about planting trees because at every step in the process for forest restoration, it is complicated. I'm not sure it's complex, Toby, but it's, it's a complicated and it's process-driven, it's rate-driven. But when you put it all together, there's a lot of moving parts that need to be made to work. Whereas tree planting is sexy. You go and you plant a tree. I mean, I've got trees all around the world with my name on them particular inaugural programs that people have set up and it's fairly easy to plant a tree and anybody can do it and kids can get involved schools can get involved it's a great way of rewilding but when you start talking about a forest the aftermath of it it's not just planting it it's keeping it under control so from a corporate point of view obviously if they if a big company wants to plant trees they're not going to just plant one or two or put some around the edge of a school field and i appreciate that can be a good thing but surely tree planting monocultures is a bad idea. I mean, yeah. I've heard examples, the Chinese have tried to do this, haven't they, to stop the expansion of the Gobi Desert southwards. I mean, there are some serious unintended consequences to just sticking a load of, sort of monoculture species next to each other and hoping that's going to be an effective programme. It is. I mean, I, I, I get the point of tree plantations as a commercial crop because people still want to use wood. I totally understand that. Even, even if you're going for renewable energy sources, 
and you need wood chip. You know, I, I get that. And they should be regarded like any other crop as an agribusiness and an area of monoculture. I mean, we don't pick up a fuss over a field of cabbage. We shouldn't pick up a fuss over a field of acacia. If you're trying to then claim that you're planting a forest, you're not. You're actually planting a commercial crop. It yeah. might have a slightly longer payback, but it's still a commercial crop. Interplanting with a range of species is rewilding, and that's what you're trying to aim. It's very important then to be clear about what your intention is, because acacia or eucalyptus plantations, if that land isn't going to be used effectively in any other way, they can be a very helpful way of funding restoration elsewhere. I've seen that with April's projects in, in Sumatra. Yeah. Yeah, NGOs are sort of whatever, controversial, but actually, when I saw that land, if that land wasn't used to generate money to save the bits of natural forest that are remaining, it would go to waste and the peat would oxidise and there'd be huge problems. I can see the value for companies in having you know, plantations that, that are used and the resources are used for something else. I suppose if you're a corporate and you're thinking about offsetting, you just really want to make sure it's about forestry and rehabilitation than about funding a planting of a monoculture species which may not actually have a commercial value to it. Yeah, absolutely. It is about being pragmatic, isn't it, in terms of a monoculture forest that then pays for extra work elsewhere, which otherwise wouldn't be funded, is exactly right. In oil palm, for example, nobody plants on steep slopes, or at least they shouldn't, but they have. Those areas are now available to be regenerated. I wouldn't consider those areas purely as potential revenue source of a monoculture. Yeah, things like balsa, you know, fast-growing, highly prized, paulinia, which is a, a tree species that is, is used an awful lot in commercial, and it's fast-growing. Yes, they may well stabilise hillsides, and they may well stop it from eroding, because if it was clear... It would just erode and you'd lose the soil fertility. And we don't talk enough about that. Maybe one of our next podcasts will be on soil quality and quantity. Those areas really could be put back to what we would call climax vegetation, you know, or at least putting the, literally the seeds in for climax vegetation to be re-established. And I should, don't think they should be seen as a, a land grab. In the oil palm industry, and it's no different in other industries, Climate change is going to have an impact on the business and on the land. Some of those impacts will be that land that previously was productive is no longer productive. And I think in my industry that I've worked in, people really have to get their heads around the fact that peat is not sustainable and that really we have an exit strategy from those areas which are peat, regardless of the depth. That is land which would be considered as a stranded asset uh, and non-productive, that's an area of land that you can begin to restore. In restoring it, I don't see anything wrong. And in talking to the experts, and I'm not an expert on, on any strength, is that there can be some small commercial crops which work with the community that give them cash to keep the project running because it's got to be kept running but then there are vast areas which can be given over to climax. Steep slopes are natural stranded assets. I mean, you know, water doesn't travel uphill, at least it doesn't in my industry. And therefore, as things get drier, then it's going to affect the slopes even more. This is fairly common sense. But there are other areas where you're not going to be able to access them because they're waterlogged. 
atmosphere of you know increased precipitation and porosity, you won't be able to get into those areas, or you won't be able to get into those areas because the road network is being affected, the infrastructure. But all of these are parts of stranded assets, let alone legislation that says you know you shouldn't take these areas. And these are great opportunities, which I think people haven't really considered, really, is looking at regenerative agriculture and combining production and protection in those areas. We're still going to need food. The big challenge is to grow more food on less land. He said this. It's not me that's saying this at all. Yeah. But there's a great opportunity for that land that you're not using to actually go and rewild it. And at the same time, if you can get some kind of carbon value for what that naturally is storing, then that just provides the pump priming money for further expansion of those areas. But we haven't got it right yet, have we? So what we're saying is that the unintended consequence of just thinking about tree planting is that you can end up with monocultures, you can end up with a badly planned project. What you really should think about is not tree planting, but forest restoration, rewilding and regenerative agriculture projects. Now, they could be kind of insetting projects, I suppose, in, in, in a corporate supply chain, or they could be projects that you fund perhaps through engagement with Red Plus program or elsewhere. You mentioned earlier, Simon, the Forest Conservation Fund and their sort of price per hectare. Tell us a bit about that. Is that a potential solution to help cut through some of the confusion about tree planting and its potential unintended? Yeah, I joined the Earthworm Foundation Forest Conservation Fund in June of last year. It's a very, very simple idea. People can work with earthworm. They will actually find the pieces of land. They will actually do all the paperwork, the legalities, the stakeholder engagement so that communities are involved with it. Because, you know, there is no unencumbered land, Toby, anymore in the world, especially where these forests are. They will put in a system for every single hectare that it is protected and all that the people have to do is donate and it's 20 us dollars per hectare per year now individuals can sponsor this corporates of course are involved there's a due diligence process because there has to be in order that it's not just anybody for example a company that is is trashing the forest in one part of the world can't just buy into this fund to pay for their sins. I mean, they should be doing something themselves. But it's open to all. I'm sure after this podcast, you can share some addresses for this. A wonderful group of people. Charlotte Opal is the person who actually is running this program on behalf of Forest Conservation Fund. And it's got numerous projects. There's about six major projects at the moment. Still needs some more funding. There's no shortage of finding these areas. It's finding the commitments for people to not just buy it for a year, but of course make a longer term commitment and corporates could play a fantastic potential solution then. I mean, I think what we tried to do in this initial podcast, and by the way, listeners, we didn't really plan this. Uh, Simon and I felt that we know each other well enough to just have a conversation, but we, I think we appreciate, we don't know all the answers, but what we've tried to do here is point out that it's a lot more complex than just planting trees and that there are unintended consequences to not thinking it through. And yet there are solutions like the Forest Conservation Fund, which enable you to gauge, engage in the longer term 
and in the kind of wider aspects, which also involve social and community empowerment and kind of rural sustainable development, as well as just planting trees. I hope that's been helpful for some of you. I'm going to post this with some links from Simon and I. And I imagine when we put this on LinkedIn, Simon, with the right title, we're going to get a dozen forestry experts uh, chiming in with their views, which is great because then we can have that conversation on LinkedIn. But for now, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the first edition of Unintended Consequences with Simon and Toby. We'll see how the reaction is and we'll see how the podcast series develops. For now, Simon, thanks for your insight. You're welcome. I, I really welcome people to wade in where I've been in error. That's fine. At least point it out. But do so is a way forward because unless we do start restoring forests, in fact, building forests, then I actually think this planet is on a trajectory which is not going to be good for anybody. Yeah, well, let's hope these projects, carefully thought through and properly resourced, can make a a significant contribution to reducing emissions and enhancing rural livelihoods. We've kind of got to make it work, really, haven't we? So we'll leave it there. Simon, thanks again. Thanks, Toby. few days ago I spoke with Bluesign Brand Services Manager for Europe, Antje Failing. We talked about what characterises tools that can really help brands engage and learn about their supply chains and reflected a bit on last week's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. On the Bluesign website it says that Euros is a holistic system that provides solutions in sustainable processing and manufacturing to industries and brands. How do you go about achieving this? As you have been saying, the Blue Science system is, in fact, a holistic system. It's based on an input stream management system that unites the entire supply chain to jointly reduce its impact on people and on the planet. And the Blue Science system is a systematic approach. So, and it engages the supply chain, chemical suppliers, the manufacturing supply chain manufacturers of fabrics and of trims, we also call it accessories, and brands. So this is the group of partners we are engaging. The input stream management that we are enforcing through our systematic approach is we are looking into people, the responsibility about the people within the supply chain, consumer safety, occupational and health and safety, the environment, water emission, air emission, waste, soil, resource management, energy, water, but also chemicals, chemical integrity, raw materials that can lead into benchmarking. So in the end, the Blue Science system gives a risk minimization, a reduction of impact, a protection of people and the environment and resource productivity. Okay, so it provides an opportunity to analyze all the things that go into a product and all the mechanisms that are involved in right. creating it. We were just at Innovation Forum's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles event this week. And in a session that we were on, we talked about the need for the apparel sector companies to develop a roadmap towards excellence. What are the key steps for establishing this for the apparel sector? Apart from our chemistry partners and apart from our manufacturing partners, we have a lot of brands on board. And we are guiding them into their sustainability roadmap. So depending on where you are within your sustainability journey as a brand within your organization, myself, the Blue Sign team, we are supporting you to identify the gaps and we are supporting to set priorities and 
yeah, we are basically helping to develop the roadmap towards excellence. And this is made based on a blue sign brand assessment. This is how we are calling it. And we are looking into various aspects within the organization. So we are looking into the corporate vision, into the sustainability vision, into the policies. We are going to look into the supply network management. We are looking into the material intelligence, the material development, product design, chemical management, chemical integrity, like the core aspect the Blue Sign partnership delivers. Supply network engagement is highly important and encouraged from our side. And additionally, we are looking into goals, the progress, and all internal and external communication. Obviously, as you say, a holistic process, many aspects to it. Everyone talks about data. Now, clearly getting the right data is very important, but it can also be very challenging. How do you characterize the process of ensuring a company is collecting and analyzing the right data? The data collection is a great and big topic right now. So first of all, it's always very, very important to clarify the purpose of its specific data. So what do I want to achieve as an organization and what do I want to communicate? In case I want to communicate, you know, we also have a lot of partners that are doing evaluations and data collections without even communicating. So it really depends on the brand signature and values. And also differentiate between do you want to present actual data or are you hunting after achievements and savings? And this is very, very important to differentiate. As per today, we cannot just press a button to pull the information that we would like to see. So we are not there yet within the industry. Very important is to start in front of its own door. It depends on the scope that brands, organizations would like to communicate in sense of um, emission reduction, greenhouse gases, for instance, probably the most popular data set up right now. The largest impact, though, is created by our supply chain. In industry language, we call it the tier two supply chain onwards down towards tier four. This is also explained as scope three. And this is where the biggest impact is. And this is where the industry right now is starting to collect most of the data. This strikes me that when you're getting to beyond tier one suppliers, when you're getting to your kind of scope three emissions, yeah. this is where the kind of alignment of data becomes really difficult. Standardizing how data is collected and reporting is going to become ever more important, but in itself creates further challenges. What are the tricks to getting this right? Yeah, alignment is a very, very good point. And I think we are just in the beginning of aligning data. So transparency comes in here, collaboration comes in here. That is very, very important. I think at the moment, it's very, very important to collect real data for now. It's a global challenge because already by having like local differentiation in measuring, so this is kind of like the first barrier that is challenging us to really find alignment. I think very, very important is to listen to the supply chain as a brand because the manufacturing partners, these guys are the experts. Check with them about feasibility of what they can deliver. And I think this is the first step and the alignment can come afterwards. As brands, we should, and I'm putting a we here because I do have a very, very strong brand background 
we should really ensure to not require stuff, but really talking to our supply chain and asking them, guys, what are you able to deliver? I think the most ambitious target would be, yeah, in a few years' time, really breaking down data towards product so that we can, based on a shirt or a pant, evaluate about what has been used and what has been saved. Having this within the horizon of data management, I'm encouraging the brands right now doing the material management and the material measurement fabrics in kilograms, potentially. So this is kind of like already a very specific request towards the future. And collaboration, make sure you're having the right partners, blue sign, SAC, talk to your brand partners. That is very, very important. And yeah, I'm highly encouraging to share and talk within the industry. Let's pick up on the point you mentioned about suppliers. So something that came up at the conference was that there's still a kind of, if you like, almost a plea from suppliers and factory owners for brands to think of them much more as partners and you know, pretty long-term partners as well. I and mean, that's another issue, developing long-term right. partnerships. But in distance, as you say, talk to suppliers work with them and then they can understand each other more and then they can work together to make the products the way that the brands want them to do so. Is this something you think that you still needs to be encouraged much more is for brands and buyers to really, given they've outsourced their production, they have to think up in terms of, well, these are still our partners here in terms of production and think long term and think in terms of more inventive payment mechanisms, for example. It has to be a cooperation on eye level. So this is a very, very strong point of view from my side. Like an eye-level partnership helps. And even though it's a business relation, customer-supplier, problems are only going to be solved together. So it's hard for a brand to solve a challenge on its own, and it's hard for a supply chain partner to solve a challenge on its own. So cooperation is very, very important. And also like the given and taken aspect of this is highly essential and very, very important. It does keep coming back to getting to know your supply chain, doesn't it? I mean, this is all about mm -hmm. you really must know your supply chain and beyond tier one. How do you recommend going about getting to know a supply chain much better? And are there any classic pitfalls that you see companies encountering? Supply network is really something we are, especially here in Blue Sign, highly encouraging to, yeah, let's say get under control or get full transparency into. This is probably also one of the most basic sustainability requirements in getting your supply chain sorted. So before starting to only dig into sustainable innovations from a material perspective, for instance, get to know your supply chain. And it's very, very hard work. And it requires a lot of resources. We are all aware of it, but it does not have to be done in one day. It's a progress and it possibly will never end. It's completely ongoing. So people may retire until certain projects are finished. Just pick a starting point, you know, it can be a specific tier. So the organization focuses on tier one, that means the manufacturing and assembling partner first, or it can be a specific reason. For instance, you have a very good relationship to your supply chain in Vietnam. So start there. You can also just choose a specific program choose a certain collection, maybe preferably a summer collection, because summer collections are usually a little less like material intense. So these are all the little tricks to, to start off this progress. Really encourage and establish long-term partnerships, encourage transparency. Disclosure 
is important, non-disclosure is not up to date anymore. I think you're right. The fact that it is hard work, it almost feels like people keep looking for workaround solutions that mean it, it can, to, can make it easier. Silver bullet solution. They don't exist, do they? It really is all about hard work and a constant ongoing process, as you say. What do you think are going to be the, kind of the challenges and the opportunities in the apparel sector more generally in the coming year? Being up to speed. So continue being up to speed. I mean, the bar gets higher and higher, like the ladder, and ensure you have sufficient foundation within your organization for sustainable achievements, because like regularities and governmental restrictions are about to pop in on a weekly base in a certain time, and it becomes tougher and tougher and tougher. Make sure that you are building an inclusive environment within your organization because you need everybody on board. You need the executive management. You need every colleague on board and everybody can bring its own into this journey. And that is very, very important. And as I said before, just go ahead. Don't wait for anyone to do the final call. Move on small decisions, large decisions. Start. Start now. And I guess if this is new to you or your organization then don't be afraid of getting started, but do start, I guess, is the message. Exactly. Absolutely. And always remember, the entire textile industry is sitting in the same boat. So we have some ambassadors within the industry, for sure. It's about all sustainability stories. Always remember, there is no competition in sustainability. So call a friend and always keep in mind that the industry is the same when it comes to sustainability. There is no competition on that level. Indeed, the panel sector, always very exciting. There's all sorts happening. Equally, there's a lot of work to do. But for now, Angie Feeling from Sign, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. And as ever, look out at innovationforum.co.uk for all the usual audio interviews and insights. But that's all for now. I've been Green Welsh, and I'll be back next week with the 150th edition of the Innovation Forum Weekly Podcast. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>